Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that in your word, not only do you reveal yourself to us, but um, you also show us what flourishing in you looks like. I want to thank you that your word is full of constant reminders about what you have done and what you are doing. Um, Your word is also full of anticipation in terms of what we can hope to experience. Uh, I want to pray that you would prepare our minds and, more importantly, our hearts and spirits as we submit ourselves to your word. I want to pray that you would help me be faithful to your scripture, and I want to pray that as we listen, we would be listening for opportunities to allow the spirit to bring change to us. I want to pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We are continuing our Philippian series And we have called it Remember to Forget, because in the context of his letter to the Philippians, Paul the Apostle is reminding them of certain things and also saying, these are things that are important for you to remember, but these are some of the things that you are needing to forget. And we are going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 5 to 18. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. It's also going to be on the screens behind me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in this world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Paul reminds us of two main things in the context of this passage. He reminds us of the subversive scandal of the humiliation of Jesus Christ and his ultimate domination when he returns to claim his rightful place. But he also invites us to participate in what it looks like to be sons and daughters of the living God, of what relationship with Jesus looks like in the context of where they are living and how they are living. And Paul is writing to the Philippian church in a time of great persecution and in a time where this church is relatively young. Now, I've um, been on a number of airplanes and uh, I've met some interesting people. I'm, I'm pretty sure there were actors and actresses on these airplanes, none of which I care about, but the two people that I did meet were Scottie Pippen, I met him, and Barry Bonds. Where's Betsy? Mary Bond, she's not here. Okay. Um, and and um, the interesting thing for me about famous people is there's like this, um, 
there's like this dual relationship that they have with their fame. So if they're at an airport, they want people to recognize them. Because if they're at an airport and you recognize them at the airport, they get the upgrade, they get the first class seat, they get those kinds of things. But generally speaking, if a famous person wants to go to Starbucks, we've all seen photos, right, of Leonardo DiCaprio with his weird kind of golfer cap on and uh, his glasses and wearing some beard and, dry, and riding a bike because, you know, we can't tell you're a celebrity if you ride a bike. So there's this weird relationship that our current celebrities have. And, and part of the reason that they disguise themselves is because they don't want you to talk to them. They don't want you plebs, you people of no worth, to actually come up to me, this famous person, and engage me in conversation. And what, what Jesus is doing, what Paul is reminding them is, is Jesus is doing the exact thank you so much for hydroflasks. Yeah? <laughs> What Jesus is reminding us, uh, what Paul is reminding us, is that Jesus has done the exact opposite. Jesus has taken on human nature so that he can interact with us. He's become one of us so that we can walk with him and talk with him. And so the, the disciples say, we beheld his glory. Christ is an example to us as, as to how he rejects the notions of what popularity means and what it looks like to possess power. I mean, think about this. Paul is writing to a city whose name is defined by the person who conquered that city. It's called Philippi because Philip of Macedon conquered that city and decided, I'm going to call it Philippi. And in the midst of that, Paul is writing, and he's saying, I want you to understand what Jesus has done that is so completely different to the way that the Caesars and rulers of your age handle power. And they don't, what Jesus is, is, is not doing is, is he's doing, the, sorry, what he's doing is he's doing the exact opposite of what these men were doing. They were claiming divinity and deity based on their military expansion, based on the kind of the brutality in which they dealt with their enemies, based on their political savviness, based on the fact that they were great architects, and they're doing all these great things, and because they're doing these great things, you need to call them Caesar, or you need to call them king, and you need to call them Lord, because they are now deified. They are gods. And Jesus has come and done the exact opposite. You know, it's, it's interesting because Paul tells us that in that day, in that day where Jesus returns, that everyone will bow their knee. And so he's reminding his readers that in this context, every single Caesar and king and ruler is going to bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when no knee will be standing up. There will be a day when no tongue doesn't confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The joy that we as Christ followers have is that we choose to do that. But just like those Caesars and kings subjected their enemies and made them bow during their victory kind of celebrations, there will be a day when all of creation is subject to the reality that Jesus Christ is king. Now, this is not a big deal if you are kind of stepping down from kind of maybe one degree of glory down to a little one. This, what Paul is saying is, there is no higher place for Jesus to have been and no lower place for him to have descended to. 
So not only did he descend to take on humanity and human likeness, but he descended as a slave, and he descended to, um, to death, and death on a cross at the hands of the people that he created. So what did he do and what did he not do? And this is not a theological treatment. This is just a summary of, some of, of what he did. did. Did he get rid of his glory? Did he get rid of his divine power, his status, or his nature as God? The answer to that is no. He didn't empty himself of anything, but he gave his everything so that we could taste something of who he was. And so that he leaves a deposit in us when he reclaims us when he comes on that day for that. It's, this is a, a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. The idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man, the libraries have been written about that. But there's just a number of things that I want to remind you of and that Paul is reminding the Philippians of in this, in this place. He did not get rid of his godly glory. We know that because there was a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John where Jesus' glory shone through and they could see that there was something not human about this Jesus. It says that he was in the form of man. So even, he, even if he was in the form of man, it didn't make him any less God. He was in the likeness of man. It doesn't mean he was kind of like man. That's not what that means. It means that even though he was in the body that human beings were, there was no sin in him. Scripture tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, there, there are lots of illustrations, but the only one that I can think of, and it doesn't really have a, a kind of a full impact, is if you were to think of a general um, in an army with kind of all of his stars and stripes and his uniform, and, and when he comes home um, and he takes that uniform off and he sits down at his daughter's little tea party table and, and he makes believe that he's having tea with her, he's still a general. There is still a power and authority to his word. He can exercise um, significant kind of power in that moment. But in that moment, he's chosen to divest himself of that for her benefit. He still has it. So my goal is not the, the academic passing out of divinity versus humanity. My goal this morning is to be stunned and blown away and mesmerized by the beauty of what our living Savior did for us. And the fact that he will return in glory so that we are able to say out of choice, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Corinthians, it says that we are the ones that behold the glory of Christ and that we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. That as we look at his glory, we are being changed. And the closest that I can think of and um, and this is maybe a little irreligious, but the closest thing that I can think of is when I was, when I was dating Karen, I, um, I, I, of course, was quite ordered in my thinking about whether she was the right woman, you know. And, um, and I talked to her friends, and I talked to her, and I knew that she loved Jesus, and I, I knew a lot about her. Um, but there was a moment where I beheld her glory, you know. And, and there was a moment because one of, one of the things that, that Karen did was, was, um, was, was Karen is a beautiful woman, but one of the things that, that she did is she just used to wear jeans and t-shirts. That's all she used to wear, jeans, t-shirts, and flip-flops, you know? And uh, her friend, thankfully, said to her, um, I think maybe we should change your wardrobe a little, you know? 
and uh, maybe just wear something other than, than jeans and a t-shirt. Because at that stage, even though I liked her, um, and even though she liked me, there wasn't really this, this kind of connection. Um, so I remember sitting down in the lounge of her friend's house, and I, I remember, I literally can visualize this now, I remember her walking in, and she was wearing this floral dress, and her hair was down, um, and she just walked in across the room, and I just went like this. And, and uh, I beheld her glory, you know? And you know what, what it did is it just added to me, I, did, I mean, I didn't marry her because she's beautiful, she is. But there was something significant about a moment where all of that stuff came together. And I was like, yes, that is the woman I want to marry. What's that? I didn't hear that. Anyway. Yeah. Why she agreed to marry me, that we'll never know. But please don't ask that question too deeply. As I said, one of my goals is to allow the Word of God and the words that Paul used to kind of marinate the toughness of our souls and flavor our lives. And so what I want to do is read this passage of Scripture again. And, and, and I want to read it slowly, and I want us to just be meditative as we listen to this. Jesus existed in the form and unchanging essence of God. He possessed all the fullness of divine attributes, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he had to possess it or was afraid of losing it. But he emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity, but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of his divine equality and rightful dignity. He assumed the form of a bondservant and became completely human without sin, being fully God and fully man. He was found in terms of his outward appearance as a man. He humbled himself still further and he became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in submission of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess and openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Spirit of God, as we just behold the glory of Jesus, won't you root that deeply in us? I mean, can you imagine being constrained in the womb that you created? Can you imagine being disciplined by the parents that you created? Can you imagine being ignored by the ears of the people that you have created? Can you imagine being doubted and ridiculed by the minds that you have created? Can you imagine being cursed by the lips that you have created? Can you imagine being brutalized, murdered, and crucified by the hands that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for you saying, let there be? St. Uh, Augustine says it this way, man's maker was made man, 
that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that light would sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accursed of false witness, sorry, accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life may die. Yes, this, this is poetic and glorious and magnificent, but it's also teachable and directive and equipping. Because as beautiful and as mesmerizing as a picture as this is, it's also purposeful. And that's exactly what Paul goes into right now. He says, therefore, as you've had your mind soaked by the beauty of our Savior, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We have an invitation. Jesus' humiliation and resurrection is an invitation for us to join Him in what new life is is about. Now, does this mean that we aim for poverty and we aim for obscurity and we aim for the kinds of the way that Jesus lived his life? No, that's not necessarily the aim. If fame and success and wealth are not in and of themselves evil, now the line is thin because you can be poor and you can be unknown and your heart can still be pumping with pride. You can be wealthy and you can be well-known and there is a humility that is stamped on you because of your relationship with Jesus. In fact, if, if Scripture was against or Jesus was against any kind of wealth or success, we probably wouldn't have the Philippian church because the Philippian church was founded based on a rich, successful businesswoman that said, come and stay with me. First thing that we need to recognize is that we already have this mind. We just need to access it. Verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We take on his attitudes, his attributes, because we've been united with Christ. This is something that we need to access rather than something that we need to work up. How many of you have a drawer in your house that is full of the most useless things, right? The junk drawer, right? You, you have that. Now, now, we have that, and, and, and my frustration with the junk drawer is that it's mainly not my junk, okay? So, okay. We have Sharpies and hair ties and all sorts of things in there. And, and part of my frustration is when I'm digging through that, I know there is something there that I need to do this project. And I'm digging through the junk drawer. And, and it's similar to what Paul is saying here, is that have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Is we have the same mind as Christ. The, the scripture says that you have the mind of Christ. You have the ability to think and respond in the way that Jesus thinks and responds. But it is so cluttered because of all the other stuff that is in there. And our minds are like a junk drawer where we actually need to just slow down, maybe empty it out every now and then and actually just put a sticker on there and say, this is not a junk drawer. Don't put all your stuff in here. And what Paul is helping them is that having the same mind is something that we already have. And having the same mind is not thinking in the same way. Having the same mind is a product of communion and intimacy, not just 
study and application. Now, it's important that you heard the just. A study, study and application can lead to communion and intimacy, but it's not automatic. I do want to say this, though. True communion and intimacy cannot happen without study and application. But study and application can happen without communion and intimacy. And the game changer in that is submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit in the context of what we do to be able to kind of get rid of this junk drawer. When, when we read, when we meditate, when, even when we come to corporate gatherings, there's a sense in which we need to access the Spirit of God to say, Spirit, help me understand what you are doing. Help me understand what I am reading. Help me to pray. And so we're not doing this alone. This is not believing the same thing. This is a much deeper sense of communion that Paul is telling the Philippian church, that Jesus is part of you, the way that you think, the way that you respond, you share the same mind. Um, when, when Karen and I play charades, it's not fair to other people because she'll like make a movement and then I'll be like, it's that. And people are like, you're cheating. I'm like, no, I just know how she thinks. And there are others of you that have had that kind of experience where, where you're talking and you know that the person that you're talking to knows exactly how you feel and how you're responding. You know, the joy is that we have the same mind as Jesus. Or whatever we are going through, Jesus understands more intimately than any human that even knows you so intimately. He knows and understands this. Have the mind of Christ among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We've been given the grace and power of the same mind of Jesus through his sacrificial death and his resurrection fueled by the outpouring of the Spirit. We aren't doing this alone. So why fear and trembling? Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's kind of weird because... In Philippians, the overarching, some of the overarching themes of Philippians is dealing with fear and anxiety. Like, didn't he tell us last week not to fear? And now he's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It can be a little bit confusing. But this is a phrase that was used in the Old Testament when people responded to the greatness of God, when God would do something amazing. This was the way that people responded with a sense of awe and reverence, with a sense of like, I cannot believe, God, that I am seeing what you are doing here. It's a reminder of the grandeur of the preceding verses. It's in light of everything that Jesus did and in light of the fact that he will return and in light of the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In light of that, there is a reverence and an awe that we approach Jesus with. And that's what he is reminding them of. It's not this ugly fear. And how do we know it's not this ugly fear? Because we read the next verse. What makes the difference between reverent and awe and the sense of like it's up to me and oh my goodness if I don't do it? For it is God. It is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God wills in you first. So God wills in you means that, that through the Spirit of God, God is the one that gives you the desire to want to do good things. 
So everything good in us comes from Him. Not only the ability to do good, but the desire to do good. It is God who wills. Our desire for, for growth, our desire for sinlessness, our desire for humility. Let me say this. Do not pursue humility. Do not pursue sinlessness. Do not pursue growth. Pursue Jesus. If you pursue Jesus in intimacy and affection, then Christ-likeness, sinlessness, humility, all of the things that we struggle with will become a byproduct of your communion with Him. And we will get so much more. Because I think I need to work on X. And I decide that I am going to, by my own volition, work on X. And Jesus is saying, well, good luck with that. Because, because you need me to give you the desire to do that, but you also need me to work in you to give you the power to be able to do that. Why? For my glory. So that I am glorified in your life. If my affection for Jesus and my transformation and sanctification is the byproduct of intimacy, then it will last much longer than a New Year's resolution. True transformation cannot be divorced by genuine intimacy. Ultimately, what we're saying is, Jesus, I want to love what you love. That is, that is the most transforming prayer you can pray. Jesus, help me not to be so angry. Jesus, help me not to be so lazy. Jesus, Jesus I want to love what you love. I want to love what you love, and maybe the Spirit of God will work on things you didn't even know were there. And maybe you'll be able to see change a couple of years later where you were like, oh, wow, that wasn't out of my own will or volition. Now, those of you that, that like the idea of not needing to work too hard, what does he say? Work out. Right? Work out. So this is not work out like on a piece of paper. Okay, what is uh, 27 times 64? Uh, let me work that out. This is working out like, this is like, like meal workout, right? This is actually do something with what Jesus has given you. God through His Spirit gives us the means. That's what God works in us. Faith is putting out an empty hand and receiving from God. Working out our salvation is what we do with that. Now remember, it's all about what He gives us. It's all about His ability to work through us. And so we've got to look at this pattern throughout Scripture, but specifically in Philippians. In Philippians 1 verse 6, what does it say? And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who starts this good work? Jesus. Who completes the good work? Oh good, I don't have to do anything. And we'll just hold it thought. Okay. We've just gone through this scripture in chapter 2. One of my favorite scriptures um, is uh, Philippians 3. And because I don't get to preach it, I'm going to steal it from the next guy who does. Okay. Philippians 3 verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. That sounds like you don't do anything, right? But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I prefer the New King James translation, which says this that I lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. There is the sense 
in which I am responding to, the, to, to what God has already and is doing in my life. If I mix up the order, if I mix up the sentence structure, or if I don't look at what Paul is saying in the totality of Philippians, or of what the Bible is saying from Genesis to Revelation, then I don't have Christianity, I don't have the gospel, I don't have good news, and it's exhausting, and it's terrifying, and it's uncertain. Therefore, I should fear. But this is not what we've received. We've received a salvation that says, though you come to me empty-handed, I will give you everything that you need for life and godliness. I will give you the desire to want to do that. I will give you the power to be able to do that. And most of all, I will give you an ability to consistently come to me in repentance and be forgiven of the times when you fail doing that. I work in response. I produce energy because of what He has given me. I don't do it in order to receive that. Now, I know that we fall on generally two sides of the camp here. The, the one is this ungodly fear. And we think that it's all about our ability to lay hold. It's all about our ability to be willing and to work hard. Or we sit on this side where we bask in the unmerited favor of Jesus, and we know that there is nothing that we can do that will make Him love us more or less. And we just sit there and don't exercise any kind of effort. Why don't we do that? Because it's hard. It's difficult. It requires energy and effort. Paul not next week, but in the next chapter says, and I don't mind reminding you of these things. And so that is one of the preacher's favorite verses because then you can say something you've already said before. And so I don't mind reminding you of this. <laughs> Dallas Willard says this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is an action. Earning is an attitude. Now, it's important to understand where he wrote this. He wrote this in an article where he was talking about means of grace or disciplines. He was talking about prayer. He was talking about solitude. He was talking about meditation, communal worship. And he was talking about how we can place ourselves in a position to receive the grace of God. Because he continues and he says, you've never seen people more active than those that have been set on fire by the grace of God. Okay, if Dallas is not enough for you, then what about 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul again says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we put a full stop there, right? I mean, a period. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But he continues, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them because I was so insecure in my salvation. No. I worked harder than any of them because I have this issue of pride that I want to be better than everyone else. No, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. It was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So the ability to exercise effort in relation to the gift that we've received, all of that comes from Him. Everything comes from Him. So how do I know that I'm working this out? Again, Paul, Paul is amazing in the way that this is structured through the Holy Spirit. These two passages are brackets of practicality that sandwich the beauty of this poem about Jesus. 
Because in verse 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. Look, sorry, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Then he goes into the portion that we're discussing this morning, and then he talks about do all things without grumbling, complaining, murmuring, or disputing, fighting, arguing, or controversy. How do I know that the grace of God is active in me? That, that I am using the energy of the Spirit to be able to be transformed through invitation and communion with Jesus. How do I know those things? It's quite practical. It's the way that I engage with my community of faith, and it's the way that I engage with the outside world. Wow, that's mind-blowing. No, it, it really isn't. It, it is the pattern of Scripture, where Paul consistently tells us that if your life has been transformed by the gift of grace, this is what it will look like. You know, I prefer the passages of Scripture that talk about the big sins, you know, where it says, and witchcraft, and orgies, and drunkenness, and murderers, and all those kinds of things. And I'm like, okay, I got that. I mean, not got that in the sense that I'm doing it, but in, in the sense that I'm avoiding that. Those are, you know. But when he talks about these things, this is what really I struggled with this week. This is what Christ-likeness looks this is what Christ looks like in my life and in the context of the people that I'm around and in the context of the world that he's called me to. Selfish ambition and conceit. That I prefer others. That I look not only to my interests but the interests of others. I'm like, God, surely there's bigger things for you to worry about. Surely, let's go back to the like witchcraft and murder and, you know, because this gets to the root of the very nature of the God-man Jesus. His love wrapped in humility. And, and, and that is what we are meant to image. Do all things, and it carries on, do all things without grumbling, complaining, murmuring, or disputing, fighting, arguing. I can do all things, not without grumbling or murmuring. It's like, can we end it there? Do, do all things. Be effective and efficient. Got it. Without grumbling and complaining. Is that really, like, is that, you know, no, that's, that, that's important. This passage is not about how to access grace. The rest of the Bible is clear about what our lives are, are, need to look like. This, this passage is, is about being able to say, what does my life look like if I'm to image Jesus? You know, this week has been difficult for me in this. Part of the reason that we don't preach or we don't have one person preach every week is because we want to develop other preachers. But another reason is this. If you're preaching every week, you don't have time to allow the Word to reshape you because you're on to the next and on to the next. And this week has been difficult in, in this specific area for me. And I looked at my devotional and I'm like, wow, there's, there's, I hope nobody finds this, you know. <laughs> And I'm intentionally writing in a way that people can't read if they were to pick up and, and write this. Because most of my devotional is, help me, Jesus. I, I'm, I, I'm coming to him 
this week and I'm saying, my God, I'm none of these things or all of these things in that sense. And I feel completely disqualified. And I feel like I don't even have the right to stand up and say these things. But I know that your grace is sufficient. And I just want to spend some time with you. And literally, all, all, all my journal says is, God, God, help me. You've got to help me. Murmuring is something that God found deeply offensive. In, in fact, sometimes he found it more offensive than sin because he would forgive the sin of the Israelites, but consistently he would say, your murmuring is something I cannot, I cannot forgive that murmuring because murmuring is the root of sin. I'm dissatisfied, I'm unhappy, I'm ungrateful, I don't have enough. And then I start to murmur, and when my murmuring is full grown, it leads to sin. There's a big difference between holding an opinion and a different position and grumbling and disputing. Grumbling is usually against God. Disputing is usually against your brother. Now, you can do both against both, but in terms of helping you kind of reveal some of the stuff in your soul, grumbling is usually against God. Disputing is usually against your brother. Grumbling is a passive kind of pride. You know, how many of you have got teenage children? You'll be very familiar with grumbling, right? Um, and disputing is an active kind of pride. No. No. Yes. No. There's a, there's a clear kind of conflict when it comes to disputing. Help us, Jesus. The way I behave in the world, finally Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. By the grace of God, I am no longer shameful or guilty or dirty. Christ has rescued me from the futile pursuits of the flesh. I'm not twisted or crooked, which really means unreliable and something that you can't build with. And those of you that are builders will know that the reason that you use a spirit level is because you trust that the spirit level is level. If you can't trust that, how can you build something straight? That, that's what he's talking about here, a, a, a crooked and twisted generation that you can't build anything like that. We, we intentionally, by the grace of God, push away our own pleasures, passions, and entitlements so that we can serve others and engage the world that we are called to live in. We are not stained or shaped by this world. All of this is so that we can bring light to a dark place, so that we can bring goodness to a wicked place, and so that we can bring clarity to a mixed up and crooked generation. We don't fear the dark because we are the light. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying that when we live like this, light emits from us, and the darkness is pushed back. Uh, we are not dark suckers. That's not how a light works. A light doesn't suck all the darkness into it. A light pushes the darkness away, and that's what we are. But mo some of the times what we do is we take a flashlight and we shine it into the face of the person and say, see the light, see the light. <laughs> and that person gets annoyed with us and aggravated and is half blind. That's not what he means by being the light. It means the way in which you live 
the normal decisions that you make about your money, about your body, about raising your children, it will emit the life of Christ so that people in darkness will look at that and be drawn to that. That's what being a light means. And finally, Paul says, holding fast. You can come up, RG. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of, in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. It's so interesting to me that in the quintessential passage on humility, Paul says that I may be proud of them. This isn't a pride. It's like that I did a good job. It's like that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain because he knows that he is about to die. He doesn't know that he's going to see them again. And he's, he's saying, hold fast to the word of life. You know, there will be a day when we stand before the Savior. And regardless of how you think you have measured up, if you're a Christ follower, these are the words that you will hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Every one of you that has bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will hear those words. Every one of you. And there are some of you, even in this room, that are stuck in sin. There are some of you that are stuck in doubt. There are some of you that are even wondering whether this is something that you can attain to mentally, never mind in your heart. You will hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know why? Because as much as Paul says to them, hold fast, who's holding us? Later on, he tells them, I lay hold of him because Christ laid hold of me. It doesn't matter if I let go. Christ holds me fast. God knows everything you've done in secret. God knows the decisions that you've made. God knows every good and bad thing about you. And yet on that day, when you choose to bow your knee, you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And some of you have not heard that. Some of you have not heard that from your mom, your dad, your boss. There will be nothing so sweet as the sound of those words. When you bow your knee to him, when you choose to bow your knee to him, and he says to you, well done my good and faithful servant. If you're a seeker this morning, you have an amazing opportunity to say, I want to choose to bow. One day, every creature on heaven, on earth, under the earth, will bow before the magnificence of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. But this morning, you can say, I want to choose to do that because I've seen what he's done for me. For us as Christ followers, if we are to be glad and rejoice, which is what Paul says in verse 18, likewise you should be glad and rejoice with me. If we are to be glad and rejoice, what are we to be glad and rejoice about? Let's be freshly captivated with the beauty of our Savior, with His magnificence and the cost of the salvation that we've received. Because if our work is not fueled by love, devotion, and affection 
then we should fear and tremble because it's not good news. It's not gospel. It's not Christianity. That is me holding on to a weak faith generated by my own strength. What we say this morning is, Christ, will you hold me? In the midst of my darkness, in the midst of my doubt, in the midst of my sin, will you hold me? When I'm proud, will you hold me? When my faith fails, will you hold me? When my love grows cold, will you hold me?